This morning, one of the songs we sang was, What Child Is This? And I just want to read the lyrics, and we may do this on several of our Sundays this year as we go through Advent. But listen to the lyrics that we sang. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing, Haste, haste to bring him Lod, the babe, the son of Mary. Why lies he in such mean a state where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christian fear for sinners here, the silent word is pleading. So bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Come peasant king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings. Let loving hearts enthrone him. Nails, spears shall pierce him through. The cross he bore for, you, for me, for you. Hail, hail, the Word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. And that song begins with the question and asks the questions, what child is this? And it's an interesting question because we celebrate on, on December 25th the birth of a baby, the birth of Jesus Christ. And the, the question is, as we, saw, and we, we have the benefit of hindsight and of history, but the question for them, what would this child be? Who really was this child? And, and oftentimes in a story, you find out the answer to those questions by the end of the story, right? The end often tells us and, and helps us interpret the beginning and understand the beginning. And we know that the end of this story, that Jesus Christ ends up as an innocent man hung on a tree and crucified for our sins. And we know that the end of the story actually then is three days later, he rose from the dead and death is defeated and sin is defeated and God has the victory. But that ending gives us a way to interpret Christmas, to understand the beginning. It brings weight to the manger. Because this isn't just some sort of new, joyous experience of a baby. The weight of this is this same baby would be the one that would die for our sins. And so at Christmas, there is this this interesting mix of emotions between joy and celebration But there also should be some emotions of of weight, weighty emotions that our Savior died and was crucified. And and these mixed emotions can have joy and grief and frustration and expectation. And, And when we think of Christmas this morning, I want us to also think of the crucifixion. And I know that that's hard and weighty and it's like, oh great, crucifixion. It's It's December, Pastor Ron. We don't want to think about these things. But I would argue today when we think through the crucifixion and what Jesus does that we understand Christmas in a better and more joyous way. That we understand it in a way that makes a lot more sense. Because this is more than a birthday party. This is more than a celebration of a new birth. This is a celebration to the glory of God of what He has done. And so today we come to the the section in Luke where Jesus is crucified. And we've been going through Luke for a year and a half. And this Christmas season, we'll be going through where he's crucified and dies and rose again. And what an appropriate thing to go through and a hard thing, a weighty thing to go through at Christmas time. But may it change how we view the holiday. May it change how we view our Savior and give us a new, renewed sense of joy, but also of purpose. Because Jesus' purpose is to be our purpose. Turn with me to Luke chapter 23. 
Luke chapter 23. And we're going to answer the question, what child is this? And we'll answer it with the chorus that we sang, nails, spears shall pierce him through, the cross he bore for me, for you. Hail, hail the Word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. So Luke chapter 23, we'll be looking at verses 26 through 43 today. So Luke chapter 23, starting with verse 26. As we go through the story, if you remember last week, we were just coming off the trials. And and two weeks ago, we did the three Jewish trials. Last week, we did the three Roman trials. And we saw the false accusations. And we saw the people that were determined to send this man to the cross and remove the scourge of this teacher called Jesus. And so at the end last week, Pilate, the wimp Pilate, gave in and he said, okay, fine, I don't think he's, he's guilty. I don't think anything should be done to him, but I'm scared of you, so take him and have your way. I may be adding in some of my own personal interpretation there, but I think we saw that in the text. And so today we pick up that story where he's now been condemned. He's now, Pilate has said, you can kill him. And so the Roman soldiers are now taking Jesus to be executed. And they're going to take him to the place of the skull, to, to Golgotha. And along the way, as they go and on the cross, Jesus isn't just going to, to give in and do nothing. He is going to use this for God's glory. And we're going to see four different interactions today that really help us understand his purpose and challenge us with the purpose of Jesus Christ. Each of these interactions also show us hope. And the title this morning is Hope in the Crucifixion. And it's that mixed emotions of hope and the crucifixion of the Jesus we love. But we have to understand both are there and both true are true. Jesus is going to, to the cross, but He's going willingly. And He's going to completely change our lives to radically alter what, what we are and who we are and what our lives look like. So we come to verse 26, and it's the first interaction. Jesus and Simon of Cyrene. And it reads, And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Short little verse for our first interaction. We see it in all three of the first Gospels, though, and we see Simon named, which is really interesting. But you have to understand some of the history there. When someone is crucified, it is more than killing the person. The Romans were really good at crucifying people, at, at, at killing them, but they also wanted to utterly humiliate them and to use them as an example to make sure other people stayed in line. This is disciplining your kids in front of the other kids so they obey you, which I don't encourage, by the way. That's, that's, we can talk parenting later. But they were determined, and so what they would do is they would take the accused or the, the, the one that was considered guilty and they would make them carry the crossbar of their, their crossbar of their cross. And they would carry that through the town to the place where they would be crucified. Crucifixions by law had to happen outside the city walls. And so they would parade the guilty through town and, and they would actually take a pretty long route to have as many people see the torture and see the shame as possible. And this was a heavy crossbar. And Jesus had been up all night, if you remember the story, with Gethsemane and then the trials. He had been beaten. He had been scourged. So you had one time that was a lighter beating, one time that was a heavier beating near death. And Jesus 
was weak and couldn't carry the cross burning. And he's stumbling as we think through what was happening and look at the Gospels. He's stumbling. It's a heavy piece of wood. And so the Romans here, what do they do? They, as they're allowed to do, they just pick someone out of the crowd and they seize Simon of Cyrene. Great start to his day. He's just there coming in for Passover. It says he's coming in from the country. Actually, Cyrene, Simon the Cyrene, he's from North Africa, modern-day Libya. And there was a Jewish settlement there, so he's almost assuredly a Jew coming in for Passover to worship, minding his own business, and, and thinking, I'm going to worship Yahweh, I'm going to come in. And he gets in the middle of this, and he gets grabbed and says, you are to carry this cross piece. And he has to follow Jesus. And he has to endure the shame of that. People don't always know. That's just someone else carrying it. How do you know who the guilty is? And, but he, th- this cross was laid on his shoulders. And his life has been, in, has been interrupted. This isn't fair. It's shaming. And what did he do? What did he do in the text? He did it. He carried the cross behind Jesus. And he followed Jesus to the place of the skull gave them the crossbar, and went on his way. And it's just a short little verse and and just a little nugget, but we see an example here of what it means to follow Christ. And and so in in your notes, Jesus and Simon of Cyrene is the first interaction, but consider what it means to follow. Twice already, Luke has said, a disciple of mine will take up his cross and follow me. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Luke now portrays this as Simon took up Jesus' cross and walked behind him and followed him. And it's a picture illustrating Luke's constant theme of discipleship, that we're to give up our own lives and to give up our own expectations and our own hold of what we want and give up self and utterly and completely follow Christ. And village, this is the best decision you can ever make. We think I've got to hold on to self to get the life I want, to get my best life now, and that's hogwash. Because Jesus says, serve me, follow me, give self to me, deny self and follow me, and see what I do. And it'll be incredible. There is nothing more amazing than following God sacrificially and seeing Him work. Because then we can't take credit for it and we see the power of God in action. And Simon here is called into duty and he carries the cross and he follows Christ. What a stunning picture of that. But I don't think that's where the story ends. You know, we don't know much about Simon, but we, we have little nuggets. You know, you, can, you have little clues. And, and one of the questions that you have to ask is why is Simon mentioned by name? Not a lot of people were mentioned by name. He's mentioned by name in the first three Gospels. And chances are, as we look at this, it really looks like he became a believer and a follower of Christ. And the church was familiar with them. So they would put his name in there because they they know who Simon is. But listen to this. I want to read a couple of verses to you that help us understand that, to help you know that that's not just conjecture. There's some evidence to that. In Mark's account, in Mark 15, 21, it says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, now again, why do you mention their names? 
Well, Alexander and Rufus are names that were common or they're names of leaders in the early church. And so it really looks like this event, God's interruption into Simon's life, became a life-changing event, a life-bringing event in his life. In Romans 16, 13, and just you know, follow the threads, Paul says, and again, when they name names, these are people that would have been known to the, the people listening to this. Paul says, greet Rufus. Remember who Rufus was? Son of Simon Cyrene, right? He says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who would have been Simon's wife, who has been a mother to me as well. You never know what God's doing with coincidences. You never know how he's working. In this case, and we don't know this for sure, but it really looks like this is the same Rufus and the same Simon. It looks like God used this interruption into Simon's life, this embarrassment in Simon's life to draw him to himself. And he became a believer and his family did. And his sons rise up to be leaders in the church. And he and his family and his wife influence Paul the Apostle who might have had a little bit of influence in the church even to this day. Don't ever underestimate coincidences and interruptions in your life and what God's trying to do. And Simon did it. He followed and he accepted what God was doing. Was it hard? Yeah. Was it embarrassing? Yeah. Was it inconvenient? Yeah. But it was worth it because it was what God wanted. There is nothing better than being in the will of God. And there is nothing worse than not being in the will of God. Chesterton said, and I put this quote in your notes, It is not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. There's some truth there. Let me read that again. It is not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And I'm not going to stand up here and say, if you come to Christ, you will have no more trials. You will have no more trouble. Nothing will ever go wrong. Your car won't overheat. You won't lose your job. You'll have perfect blissful relationships in your home every moment of the day. No, there's things that are going to be hard. And there's trials. And there's struggles. Some of them because of our faith and others that don't believe in our faith. But village, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. The cross was laid on Simon and he carried it behind Jesus. And so we see an example of following Christ and it forces us to consider what it means to follow. What child is this? The one who couldn't even lift his cross piece, but a life was changed because of it. That's what child is. We go on to the next interaction in 27 through 31. And it's an interaction between Jesus and the women of Jerusalem. And the challenge here is to consider God's gracious warnings and to listen. Let me read this passage. And there followed him a great multitude of people. And they're still parading through the streets. And you have Jesus and Simon right behind him carrying the cross. A great multitude of people and of woman, women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. 
For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that have never bore and the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? There's a lot there that, that might be confusing and a lot to work through. But what Jesus is doing, he's warning them that there's trouble ahead. And, and it's amazing. Jesus has just been beaten a couple times, inju- unjustly tried. He is being led to be crucified, the most brutal form of execution they had at the time. And he turns and warns someone else of trouble they're facing and cares about them and, and challenges them to repent. This is an amazing act of love and care of Jesus not caring about himself and not saying, oh no, I'm going to die. You think you have trouble? I'm about to be crucified. Have you seen the size of those nails? Instead, he said, don't weep for me. This isn't about me. Weep for yourselves. and that, that, It's the idea of repent for yourselves and, and come to Christ. Mourn for yourselves for the sin of Israel, for the sin of Jerusalem. And this warning here is, is given to, in the hopes that people will change, in the hopes that people will listen to it. You know, when, when, when you see your child running for the street and you say, don't go out in the street, you'll get hit and smushed. You're, you're, not, you're not hoping they still do. The, the reason you give a warning is to stop the behavior And so Jesus is lovingly giving this gracious warning, hoping that this town will listen. He says, don't weep for me. Look at yourself. And and in 29 on, he gives this description and and that we know comes true in AD 70. Forty years later, we know this happens. He says, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. Because in AD 70, when Rome came, they surrounded the city and they besieged the city and people were starving, and there's horrific stories of what was happening in the city, especially to the young children. And that was God's judgment on a city and a nation that had rejected Him, that had the Messiah in their lives and chose not to follow Him. And they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And that last verse, there's all kinds of ideas about what that means because it's, it's, it's more of a, a proverb, a, a way of talking. And um, it really just means if, if the Romans are willing to do these things to me, then what will they do who's innocent? What will they do to you who's guilty? See, wood when it's green doesn't burn as well, right? So it takes a lot more. But wood when it's dry and, and it, just in, in horrendous images, we've seen this in California, Wood, when it's dry, will just spark up and burn. And Jesus is using that idea to say, okay, what they've done to me is like green wood. And and you're mourning me and you're thinking this is so horrid. It's going to be so much worse when God allows judgment to fall on you who are guilty because you've rejected the Messiah. And so this is a call to come to the Messiah. And he's using just an image they would have understood. We don't... We don't always understand it, but they would have understood it. I, I can remember being in Mexico one time on a missions trip, and some of you remember this. And, and so as the leader, I was usually the oldest one on the team, and I'd be like, I'm old. And the kids would say, oh, no, no, you're not old. The mountains are old, and they still get green every year. 
And the first time they said that, I'm like, I'm not really sure whether I should be happy or sad right now. Maybe a little angry. Did you just insult me? I don't know. And, and one of them said, no, 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 no. The, the mountains, they're really old and they still have life and grow. And so you're not that old. Like, That's not how I'm feeling right now. Um, but we, I didn't understand it, because, but they did because they knew what was going on. That's sort of what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, I'm like the green wood that's harder to burn. You guys in your guilt are like the dead wood. And if you don't repent, if you don't change, some pretty horrible things are going to happen. And it's a call for repentance. Understand this. This is a warning. He is offering salvation. And their question was that for the city, are they going to accept it? Are they going to respond to the Savior and follow the Savior? They had every opportunity to. And we have to see that for us too. Jesus is longing for them to be saved, but as long as they reject Him, judgment is coming. And the same is true for us. If you've never given your life to Christ, He is longing for relationship with you. Longing for you to be saved, for you to come to Him, for you to repent. But he's also warning that if we don't, there is judgment to follow. And we have a choice. Will we accept or will we refuse? Just as Jerusalem did, just as the leaders did, will we accept a Savior or will we refuse a Savior? Will we understand that that baby is the Savior and is the King and wants to follow us? But even while we're drowning, we have to choose to accept that. I can remember one vacation in Palm Springs and we were all in the pool. And um, one of my kids didn't understand a a lot about the deep end and shallow end yet. And they just walked into the the water where it was over their head. And rather than panicking or flailing, and I still remember this just so vividly, they just looked at me from underwater and stood there. I'm not going to say which one it was. As a parent, that was the worst thing in in my life that I had ever seen. Because, I don't know, it was eerie. Just chilling. Because he didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to do. (laughs) I'm going to owe one of my kids a dollar. And they looked at me with this a little bit of fear, a little bit sort of like, what's going on? And I, I, I take my hands out to try to grab them. And at that moment, they had a choice. Do they grab my hand? Do they, do they let me save them? I had every means to be able to save them. And I did. We didn't have four kids before. We still just have three. Um, and, and, and I was able to take them by their hands because they let me and they held out their hands and bring them to safety. That's what Jesus wants to do for sinners and the lost. We are drowning before Christ. And our sin is like chains and weights that hold us underwater. And we're just looking at Jesus. Sometimes not looking at Jesus. And looking the other way. And He's saying, I can save you. But we have to respond. That's the challenge of this. Consider God's gracious warnings and listen. That's the response. And Jesus in His love, on the way to the cross, while He's being tortured, still cares more about other people. What an example. What an example. I know most of you in here have taken that salvation from Christ. 
and have asked him to rescue you. Things like this should say thank you. We should say thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done. And, and grow in our appreciation even at Christmas time. So then we come to the third interaction. We've had the interaction with Simon, the interaction with the women of Jerusalem, and now we have Jesus and the crucifiers. And this is a difficult interaction as we look at 32 through 38. And the challenge here in your notes is we need to consider forgiveness. We need to consider forgiveness, both, both God's forgiveness to us and are we following Jesus' example and forgiving others. And so we read in verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. So it's not just Jesus. Romans, you know, they don't want to waste time, so do as many as possible at one time. And they bring two others who are guilty, who are criminals, and they're going to be crucified as well. And we know that Jesus is crucified, and there's one on each side of him. And in verse 33, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. The place of the skull, like I said, is, is in, sometimes called Golgotha. And they mean the same thing. But also skull in Latin is Calvaria. This is where we get the word Calvary. And it, it means the skull. It was a representative of the place. And, and you know, we're not quite sure exactly where the place was. There's a couple of options. But the one that I think it was is probably where the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is. And we have a picture here. This is a, a model from um, a museum that's in Israel. But in the model, you see the city in the background. In the back right corner would be the Temple Mount that's happening there. But here in the front, and I don't know if you can see the little rock in the front and some of the greenery, that would have been the garden and the quarry where they really think Jesus was crucified. Had to be outside of town. And and if you notice the gate there on the right, they always did their crucifixion as close to the main road as they could into town. Why? Shame and embarrassment and fear. That's... You, you get the most fear when you hang the people you kill right where everyone can see them. And, and I know that sounds horrid, but that's the life that they were living in. And so they bring Jesus to this, this place. And in verse 33, it just says, they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And we move on to the interaction, but I just want to stop for a minute and understand the crucifixion. And, and I know you've heard this, and we usually hear this at Easter and save it for Easter let the weight of it at Christmas weigh on you. Crucifixion, this is from Hengel on the crucifixion. Crucifixion was used both as a means for execution and for exposing an executed body to shame and humiliation. The Romans practiced a variety of forms. The main stake or polis generally remained at the place of execution while the victim would be forced to carry the crossbeam or patabellum and the crossbeam was placed either on top of the palace like a T or in the more traditional cross shape. And probably in this case it was a cross shape because we know a sign was posted above Jesus so that the, the main piece had to still go up. The victim would be affixed to the cross with ropes or as in the case of Jesus with nails. The hands and probably his feet. Various positions were used to maximize torture and humiliation. Seneca wrote that some hang their victims with head toward the ground. Some impale their private parts. Others stretch out their arms on a fork-shaped gibbet. It's horrible. There was a horn-like projection which the crucified straddled, which took most of the weight and stopped the flesh from tearing from the nails. Death was caused by loss of blood, exposure, exhaustion, and suffocation as the victim tried to lift himself to breathe. 
Victims sometimes lingered for days in agony. Crucifixion was a slow and painful death. It was viewed by ancient writers as the cruelest and most barbaric of punishments. That's the child we celebrate this Christmas. That was his fate. That's where God's will led him, and he went willingly. And we praise God that that wasn't the end of the story, but the weight of that should, should give us a renewed appreciation that he hung on that cross, took our sins on himself, the punishment for those sins, and the wrath of God he took in our place so we could have eternal life and be clean. So we could have his righteousness village. This is an amazing exchange. The best gift exchange ever for us. And then we get to verse 34. As Jesus now is crucified, he's hanging there. The nails are through his hand and feet. He's struggling to breathe along with the, the, the criminals. He's numbered with the transgressors. And in verse 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How on earth could he say that? Who of us could say that after we've been tortured and we're dying? But we see the heart of God. We see the heart of a Savior. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And, and he's not saying that we're, we're absolved of guilt if, we're, if we don't know what we do or if we're somehow ignorant What he's saying is they don't understand the ramifications. They don't understand that this is the will of God. They don't even, the Romans here don't even understand the charges or what's happening. And so their ignorance isn't the source of their forgiveness though. This is an offer of forgiveness from a dying Savior who's about to take the price, take the penalty for the sins of the people killing him. What an amazing Savior we have. And he's showing us his mission. He's showing us his heart. He's showing us his incredible grace even as they throw dice for his clothes below him. This is not common. And I think we know that. When we are are challenged, when we are hurt, when we are attacked, we respond back and we fight back. But even at the time... Just a few years earlier, there was a Maccabean revolt and there was Maccabean martyrs. And as they're being martyred, they they said more of the common things. They said, keep on and, and see how his mighty power will torture you and your descendants. Or, but do not think that you will go unpunished for having tried to fight against God. And, and we, we have in some of their writings a lot more where they were just coming back and asking for God's wrath and vengeance on them and that God would deal with them and show them Show them the results of their their actions. But Jesus, but Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And he's offering salvation. He's offering forgiveness, even for the worst of sinners, even for the ones that crucified the Savior of the world, if they will turn to him. What a Savior. And they're casting lots. They're dividing up His garments and fulfilling Psalm 22. And the people stood by in verse 35. And the people stood by watching. 
And, and then now that he's crucified, it gets worse. And these are the people Jesus is offering forgiveness to. And, and the, the rulers there start scoffing him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Christ of God, if he's the chosen one, and, and it's almost like these rulers are doing a little victory dance on his body or in front of his body as he dies. They've got their way. He's on the cross. He's crucified. And now they're rubbing it in. And, and now they're celebrating. They're doing a little happy dance. Or some of you know jubilation. No, I'm not going to do it. And this is sickening. They won. And they're, they're rubbing it in. See, we're in charge. See, you're not a king. See, you have no power over us. Don't defy us. This is what happens to people that defy us. And they go on and they, they start taunting with some of the things that he's done and some of the things he said. He said, he saved others. Let him save himself. Catch what's there, what we miss there sometimes. What does that mean they knew? That he saved others. That's right. And, and they acknowledge He's saved others. They are acknowledging the signs. They are acknowledging the things that should have led them to salvation. And they spit on it. And they mock Him. Wow. And here's the thing. What they're asking Him to do, He's doing. He saved others. Let Him save Himself. No, he's still saving others. In fact, if he saves himself, he stops saving others. Jesus saved us by not saving himself. Understand that this morning. Jesus saved us by not saving himself. He didn't fall into self-protection. He didn't worry about self. He was worried about others. And in these interactions, he's always bringing hope to others. And the hope here is the forgiveness that he's offering if they will turn to him. And he saves us by not Saving himself. If he's the Messiah. If you're the Messiah, start by saving yourself. Does that sound familiar anywhere? Remember Luke 4? I know that goes back a year and a half. We're almost done with Luke. It's been great. Luke 4. Beginning of Jesus' ministry. So we have the beginning and the end. Satan comes to him in the wilderness. What does Satan say? If... You're the Son of God. Do this. If you're the Son of God, do this. And now at the end, if you're the Messiah, if you're the Son of God, save others. They're just reenacting what Satan already tried. And they're tools of Satan at this point. And then it gets worse. So you have the leaders mocking. You expect that. And the soldiers in verse 36, they're nearby. So they also mocked coming up and offering him sour wine and, and saying, if you're the king of Jews, save yourself. And, and they don't know the charges and they don't understand the Jewish customs, but hey, they're mocking. It looks fun. We got time to kill. In fact, they put an inscription over him saying, this is the king of the Jews. And it was tradition that you put the charges, you posted them above the, the victim on, the, on the, the beam. And the charges are he's the king of the Jews. And he was. Just not in the way he was being charged and not in the way they thought he should. So first we have the rulers mocking and now the soldiers. And we still have the offer of forgiveness even to the very people that are doing this. What child is this? 
the one that would be crucified and mocked like a common criminal and still offer forgiveness to all who follow him. That's what child this is. Third interaction was Jesus and the crucifiers. And we consider forgiveness. That God has offered forgiveness to any of us if we will come to him. And that we are to do the same for others. Because how dare we have an unforgiving spirit to each other if God has already hung on the cross, if Jesus has hung on the cross for their sins and forgiven them. Oh, no, no, Jesus, your forgiveness was easy. I have to hold on to this grudge a little longer to make them pay. No, no. Don't hold someone with an unforgiving spirit to something that the God of the universe has already dealt with and considered them innocent of or righteous because the payment has been made. The fourth interaction as we wrap up, verses 39 through 43, it's Jesus and the criminals, or Jesus and the repentant criminal, because that's really who the story is about. Both criminals are mentioned at the beginning, but it's a setup for the repentant criminal. And it, the, the, the challenge for us is consider sure hope in salvation. In verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Really? Another person? It's bad enough that it's the rulers. And then the soldiers chime in. And now the guy dying next to him? Just just be quiet and die. That's what I would have thought or felt probably. But this guy joins in. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And, And it's just amazing that this is happening the scene is horrific but then we get to really the beauty of this passage but the other the other criminal rebuked him and we know from the other gospels he probably was mocking at first but then realized things as they hung there but the other rebuked him saying rebuked the first criminal do you not fear god since you are under the same sentence of condemnation hello we're being crucified too And the idea of do you not fear God, it could be translated, do you not even fear God? And it's a statement by this criminal of who Jesus is. He's calling Jesus God here, or recognizing He's the Messiah. And this is mocking God and mocking God's plan. And he goes on, and we indeed justly, He's talking about we're we're under condemnation. We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And here we have a a statement of Christ's innocent. Again, we, we saw Herod declare him innocent. Pilate declare him innocent. Now the thief on the cross declares him innocent. He's saying, we deserve this. And catch what's happening here. The thief on the cross here recognizes Jesus as God. Now he recognizes his sin and acknowledges his sin and his need for repentance. And he says this to Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 42. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this is a statement of submission to Christ. And and, and these are short statements. He's dying as well. He's suffocating as well. And he looks over and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that's a statement of Jesus' kingship. That's a statement of belief in Jesus. This is the repentance of sin. 
And Jesus answers in 43. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. What hope and what assurance. word for paradise was sometimes used of the, the blissful state in the Garden of Eden before the fall. And it came to be used of, of heaven, that state in heaven before the new heaven and the new earth where we will be with Christ in joy and in perfect communion. And Jesus said, today that's happening. And this is a response to his statement of belief. Even as short as it was, we would maybe call it inadequate, but Jesus knew the heart. And, and Jesus knew it was because really what Jesus is looking for is I'm a sinner and I need you. I will follow you. That's what Jesus is looking for. This thief wasn't saved by works. He couldn't do anything. He was dying just like we are before we come to Christ. We're dying in our sins. We can't do anything. And this is a great reminder, a great reminder that anyone, when we look at the cross, anyone can be saved. I've had so many people say at different times, well, I've done this. Jesus couldn't save me. I don't think you've done this. The cross is available for anyone, no matter what you've done, no matter what your past is, no matter what your skin color is, no matter what your history is, the cross is sufficient for anyone and we are all equal at the foot of the cross because we all need Christ and we all need His righteousness. And this is a promise for all of us. There's a hope here that if we trust in Christ, our hope is most assuredly that we will be with Christ in glory and that this life is not all there is. Jesus came as a baby to be crucified and bring salvation to all. What child is this? The one who will give his life so that every person has the opportunity for salvation. So that every person has the opportunity to repent and follow him. Today we're going to end our service by taking communion together and and by worshiping together because we have to worship the God who hung on the cross for us, who died for us. We celebrate the baby that came, but the end of the story, the purpose is this. And as we celebrate communion, we're remembering this. As we come to the pieces of bread or the pieces of, of cracker, those represent Christ's body. His body that hung on that tree, that was nailed to that tree, weak and bloodied, but that he willingly gave himself for our sins, for our salvation. The juice represents his blood. Blood that was spilled as a penalty for our sins. Because it should have been you and I on that cross. It should have been you and I trying to carry that crossbar. It should have been you and I mocked. And Jesus said, let me take that for you. Let me take that. That's why he was born. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Don't lose Easter as you celebrate Christmas. Because one explains the other. Let me pray. Thank you, God, for what you've done. Thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for coming as a child, for the intention and purpose of going to the cross and then being resurrected the third day to pay for our sins. Lord, help us 
to be challenged to follow this child, to know what child this is. Help us to be challenged to listen to your word, to repent, to follow you well, to extend forgiveness, but to know that we have a hope of salvation in you. And Lord, as we take these elements that are just symbols of what you've done, help us to remember and remember well what you've done and help that to carry out those doors to how we live this week. Lord, we celebrate your work because we would be lost without it. Thank you, God, in your name.